Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today we have a special guest on the show to talk about IFS, or Internal Family Systems. This has been a theory that I've heard about from my students and from other people for a long time and have just been too lazy to look up the information myself. So I decided to have an expert come on the show and explain it to me so that I don't have to actually read anything. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you. Would you like to introduce yourself to Podcast Land? Sure. I'm um, a therapist at Samaritan Center of Puget Sound. I've been there since 1980. I first started to talk with Dick Schwartz about this in uh, 1986. It was uh, intuitively very easy to grasp, although the doing of internal family systems is a little more complicated. So there was a clinician theorist named Dick Schwartz or Richard Schwartz. Right. You knew him? Is that what you're saying? I went to meet him. He was the director of the Institute for Juvenile Research in Chicago at that point, which was a an accredited Meriton Family Therapy training program. And he's the founder or the, the sole person behind IFS or internal The main family. contributor, yeah. You know how people identify uh, structural family therapy with Mnuchin as if he was the only one who ever did anything. Yeah. But that's the name you would associate with this theory. And he's published a great deal. And now more and more people are, are adding to it themselves. What are the main tenets of internal family systems? Dick got started thinking about this, doing an, a, a project, uh, working with women, uh, most of whom had a trauma history and possibly eating disorders. And he, he listened to how they would talk about things. And uh, they would often refer, well, there's a part of me that doesn't want to eat, but there's this other part of me that knows I should. He, he was using structural and strategic ideas, which he had been trained in at Purdue as a PhD in the Purdue program. They weren't all that successful. So he began to see what would happen if he just listened to the way the clients were uh, talking about things and teaching him. And uh, it was pretty normal for him to take the idea uh, of parts, uh, like we have a family that has parts, and think about the relationships between the parts. It's just it's an internal family. A lot of other psychologists have uh, thought this way. Carl Jung, for one, uh, talks about parts that are split off or sublimated that we would rather not have as part of our personality, and ego is kind of in charge of that in the Jungian picture. The idea was not original to him, but he he was um, probably prepared better than most to apply sort of systems thinking to the relationships between parts, and uh, especially in the people whose uh, history included a lot of trauma, they had often a very polarized uh, relationship. There were parts that um, thought, uh, well, if if something good happened, that's probably the worst thing that could happen because now now disaster is right upon us. So in a, in a cognitive behavioral f framework, that would be a schema of catastrophizing that it's part, a part has, not the whole person. And that would be countered by, by some other dis dissident part. We say, well, it can't be that bad. It was a good thing that just happened. It was yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah, you mentioned systems theory. I lied about not reading anything about internal family systems. Okay. I I've read some things. And from what I understand, Richard Schwartz, well, actually, I know this. He's actually an author in systems theory. Sure. He writes textbooks that are or have been in the past read by graduate students learning family systems theory. 
Right. He and Mike Nichols co-authored a, a very influential book for a number of editions. Mike had recruited Dick to help him with that because okay. they kind of overlapped in different areas. Right. And then um, the most recent editions, Mike's going back to doing it by himself. When I was in graduate school in the 90s, there was the Nichols and Swartz book, if I, if I remember mm-hmm. right. That was the main family systems text. Yeah. So as he was learning and practicing and I'm guessing writing about and maybe teaching about systems theory, which has the idea that in a family, you have people taking on different roles. Right. And when you have a problem with one person, teenager acting out, you bring that one person into therapy, the systems thinker will say, well, that's just one part of the whole. The teenager is acting out, but you also have to bring the other people into the session and figure out what role they're playing. The father is playing the logical, stern, distant guy. And the mother is playing the over-involved emotional person. And the, right. the, the younger sister is, is the star. Everyone's playing a different role and they all have a purpose. And how, does, how do those roles fit together? And how do they both alleviate and cause the problem that they're bringing into therapy, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. So he was influenced heavily by this thinking and had been writing in it for a while. And you're saying that at a certain point, and I remember reading this, he was listening to his clients in individual therapy talk about these parts that they had inside of them. And he started Mm -hmm. applying this family systems model to an internal family systems model, meaning that we have not only different parts in a family, every individual playing a different role, but you also have different parts of the self, all of these interacting in a systemic way. And he started to develop this model and use it with his clients and found some success and started writing about it and called it internal family systems. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was probably uh, the first uh, textbook uh, Guilford published in 1995. So it was a while before it got to the publishing of these ideas. And the first book had, had to be kind of an academic book that gave background and uh, support for things. But he was working with the ideas for, I'd say, 10 years before that. What's the name of that? Internal Family Systems. I also have a book on my shelf called Meta Frameworks, which I think he has a chapter in where he talks about internal family systems. I don't know if that predates that main text. By only two or three years, he and Doug Brunlin and some others, Betty McCune, Doug Brunlin was also at Purdue, they they began to think sort of along the model now of uh, the, the ways in which people look for common factors in theories. Mm. There's too many theories, and they're always fighting with each other. There's sort of a nationalism of theory. So what are the things that, that each of the theories addresses that uh, these are the meta frameworks right. that, that you could look for in any successful theory? Right. Rather than to fight with somebody because they don't think exactly like you do, say, well, we do that pretty much also. We, we, we look at the, the relationships, the hierarchies in the family. We look at gender. These are important things that the field has embraced. Yeah, I'm big on that. I actually don't appreciate it when people fight with each other, particularly when they're fighting with me <laughs> about <laughs> yeah. my way of thinking because they have a preconceived notion that they're right and I'm wrong or that my theory doesn't agree with them at all or something. And because 
as this book was trying to do, is trying to bring people together and show that there are a lot of common factors among these different theories. Okay, so you have these internal family systems, meaning you have different parts to the self, and it's not a new idea that Swartz came up with. There were people that came up with it before him. What makes his idea different from the ones that came before him? I think of, uh, of the influence of, uh, of what happens in a person when trauma is a big part of their life. His thought about that is that uh, parts get coerced into form, to roles which protect the, the child. If you think of a child experiencing physical abuse or sexual abuse, it's more than analytic terms the ego can handle. And there are um, a lot of dissociative disorders have their roots in, in children who are significantly abused, who protect themselves by just not being there, right. by just going up on the ceiling because and, 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 they can't do anything about what's happening to them. This is a kind of a general theme also. When you've lived past that 20 years, you, you are still using solutions as if you didn't have a, a developing ego. Mm-hmm. So part of what happens in internal family systems is this uh, leader within the, the whole set of parts that which – carries the name in this theory of self with a capital S. In, in Jung's theory, ego is different than self also. Ego can be kind of tyrannical and can shut down unliked parts, but self is usually, even through the dream process, helping people to reclaim and, and get in touch with these cut-off parts that they have. Mm-hmm. It works something very much like that, that if you can strengthen the self and gradually help parts that have been taking on these protective roles, uh, acknowledge that their work could be done. It's really a, a fascinating thing. I, I've often thought of a report I heard in the 50s of uh, Japanese soldiers that in the South Pacific that went into hiding when American forces landed, and they were found 12, 14 years later, having successfully hidden in caves, but they never found out that the war was over. That, that had never been safe to find out that there was. So they only came out w- when it, it, they would not be discovered. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's a little bit like that, that as self develops, and, and part of this therapy helps the self to develop, it's like there's a, a me in the middle of all this mm. that could possibly manage a situation except that another part has already stepped in to manage it instead of self because they don't have any confidence that self has resources. They didn't the last time they looked. Let me know if I have this right. So early on in a child's development, they might be going through some sort of trauma, some sort of abuse, say physical or sexual abuse, and a part of them emerges as a way of trying to protect the self from that pain. And that part is useful as a child when going through abuse, it's very useful to have a part become developed as a protective measure. But that part remains in adulthood when the person has left the family and is no longer being abused, right? but is still very active and creates interpersonal problems and emotional problems. And then they come to therapy to someone like you, Bill. And when you are talking with them, you use the model of this part of them that has this historical importance and usefulness, but no longer is important, but might be getting in the way. Is that accurate? Yeah. You'd start maybe saying a, a client meets with you and they say, you know, I, I really don't trust people. 
So the first distinction that you might make is to say not you don't trust people. There's a part of you that doesn't trust people. Mm. So it just by creating that distinction, there's a little bit more space in which people can be whole. And uh, we say, well, why is it that you have not been trusting people? What is this part of you concerned about? Well, that can go on a very long time because right. people have, especially when they've been injured by those that they thought they should have been able to trust, a, a teacher, uh, a clergyman, a parent, uh, a brother, a neighbor. It's a defensive posture, but the, this part says that you're going to be safer. You're not going to get hurt again if you don't trust people. I often think of Paul Simon's song, uh, I am a rock, I am an island, a rock feels no pain, an island never weeps. It's a kind of formulation of this sort of thinking. Like, I'm not going to let that happen again. Well, I had a client one time said, I, I had a feeling once it was awful. I'm not doing that again. So it, it, it's inherently a, a stance of saying, I'm going to take care of you because you can't take care of yourself. Right. I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, that Swartz was influenced to some extent by Michael White and narrative therapy. Is that true? Well, I know he, he read narrative therapy and, and knew those people. And this sounds slightly like that in terms of the element of externalizing something or – and it's not exactly externalizing it, but it's disidentifying with that distrustful part. Right. It's a way of framing the client's experience, I'm guessing, as a way of trying to help them by saying that you might trust people or you might want to trust people, but there's a part of you that doesn't trust people. Right. Why is that? What purpose did that part have? So you're not saying you're distrustful for no good reason. You're saying there's a reason why that part of you was developed. Right. But you're also saying that's a part of you. It's not the whole you. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to help them to loosen up their identity a little bit. So the idea is is the the self doesn't play the part that it could. I'll keep making metaphors between the family where there are different people who play different roles and the self where there are different parts that play different roles. But I was over at the Magnuson Dog Park one time and they have uh, a place there where you can let your dogs walk with you. And I met a woman that I knew and as I went toward her, glad to see her, she had this 90-pound German shepherd with her who was clearly on guard. So I could tell by his growling. And, and uh, she said to the dog, it's all right, sit. Right? That's the part that isn't functioning in, in a person who's a client who says, uh, I'm not here to say you can trust this person. There's, it's always don't trust, right? Mm -hmm. So the dog was quite well behaved and he sat, but if I moved my hand too fast or raised my voice, he was back on duty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she would again have to say, no, no, it's all right. You know, so the, the role of self is often to take the input of a part and, and, and to say, I've got this one or I understand the context better than you do. The dog didn't understand whether I was foe or friend. Right. She understood that. Right. So the metaphor is that someone that has been abused, that has a very strong German shepherd part of themselves, yeah. that now is is running the show and the self isn't exerting control over that part of the self. Mm -hmm. They get into a lifestyle of distance and loneliness and isolation because everyone's running away from them because they're barking at everybody. Right. And so you're saying that you help people to exert control over that part, to understand that part, to 
interpret what you're saying, the input from the outside world and say, I understand that you're yeah. afraid of that person, but I'm telling you, you don't need to be afraid of that person, that part of me. Right. So let's let's move forward with a trusting relationship with that person because I'm lonely. And if you run the show, I'll never be involved with anybody. That's right. The work that the therapist facilitates is for the self to get to know where the part who has this position is coming from. Mm-hmm. What are the, the background stories that inform that position? Right. I, I, intermediating w- with that part to say, if there was another way that we could be sure that, uh, that I was safe, would that be okay with you? And often parts will tell you they're pretty darn tired of taking on this role over and over again. So is it frequently with trauma? Is that the idea? Is that this is used mainly with people with trauma in their past? Uh, not m- mainly. It's, it's The whole situation is more extreme uh, when there's trauma, whether it's war trauma or, um, you know, a kid that was in a city that was bombed because there was war going on around like Sarajevo, or if you grew up where there were drive-by shootings in your neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, those kinds of things that terrify and make you feel unsafe are often instigating. But everybody, like I have graduate students that say, you know, there's a part of me that wanted to write this paper, but then I had missed like my, my, my TV show if I wrote the paper tonight. So I, I just put it off. Mm-hmm. Right. So there, people are negotiating between parts a lot, but they're not extreme. Mm-hmm. You know, what, where we see extreme symptoms like eating disorders or uh, self-harming behavior, Mm-hmm. We're, we're often expecting to find a, a major amount of trauma in the past of that person. So with eating disorders, trauma survivors, this sort of thing, that that's what it yeah. might be. Veterans. Veterans. Would come to mind. Yeah. Um, people in relationships, uh, partnering relationships that uh, have trust issues with each other. Just general trust issues. Yeah. Or, or brought trust issues. You know, like a, a woman in a second marriage who was abused by her first husband will have trouble distinguishing her second husband from her first husband at some level. So it sounds to me like a lot of clients that you're thinking of where this model is helpful for is for people that come from past trauma or difficulty along those lines and have difficulty trusting and have a history of feeling terrified or afraid or abused mm-hmm. in, the, in this sort of thing. I see. So if someone came in and said, I've never been abused and I have issues with my relationship and trust you after talking with them, you don't feel like is a major issue. They're not one of those people that seems to be trust as a central issue in their problems with people. You might not use this model with, with those people. Is that what you're saying? Well, it would often depend upon whether this idea that they have an awareness of, of parts. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not a traumatic issue, but there's a part of me that really likes to be in control of my partner. I had a young man one time say, I knew when I married my wife, there are just one or two things about her that I needed to change. You you wouldn't believe how difficult it's been to change those. I said, well, did she agree to be the changee? Oh, no, I, I never told her about that. So then I said, I do understand why it's been so difficult. But I don't know that the whole of him needed to be in control. It was just a part of him that felt safer if if he was in control. 
and, and these are not like uh, the extreme issues of domestic violence. Right. These are just the natural comfort areas that get people pretty agitated if, if it's not going the way they want it to go. So this example you're saying, this fellow might not have been abused growing up. He might have had a within normal limits sort of life. Right. But there's a part of him that wanted to control for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is just the series of examples we've come up with so far, but I'm just trying to clarify just because I want to know. I want to walk away after this podcast, an expert, just like you, Bill, 100%, just joking. It sounds like it's a part of the self that is akin to that guard dog, that that seems yeah. like a common theme is to identify that scared, vulnerable, fighting, protective part of the self. There are parts that have those kinds of of feelings that that there's a lot of being afraid or sad or pain, as you mentioned earlier. There often will be a response from within the self to kind of isolate or or push that part down. Carl Carl Jung always referred to as down into the unconscious. So that we don't have to deal with all that pain. Sometimes if you're talking to somebody and you ask them about something that might be painful and they change the subject, mm-hmm. you guess, well, I think there's something there they don't want to talk about. And that'd be the action of, of this manager, a part in a manager role to say, let's just go over here and not do that. Or somebody will say to you, in, in, even in a therapy session, you, you don't want to go there. Really? I mean, why, why don't I want to go there? Yeah. Well, I, I don't want you to go there. So it's getting clearer. This is a, a place that is in everybody's life where there's pain, where there's things that they are anxious about or, or frightened about that they don't necessarily put out on the table. They manage it some other way. Uh, like I, I had a client years ago who was a carpenter, and uh, he never knew he had dyslexia, but it was pretty clear that in carpentry, he didn't have to read. And so it was a safe place for him to do good work, and he'd kind of not done well in school because reading was highly valued in school. So he just adapted to something he could do well without putting out that he, he had trouble reading. Are there common parts of self that are labeled with common names because with my students who have talked about IFS, I've heard the same parts of the self being discussed. Are there common parts of the self that are often identified and talked about? In the, the book that Dick wrote, he, he distinguished three different roles that parts typically fall into. Okay. So often that's what's common. And it's just a little shorthand that people use identifying the part with the role uh-huh. Right. So if you talk to um, somebody who grew up in an alcoholic family about being the lost child, they, they don't really think of themselves as a lost child. That's the role they have in the family. I want to say these are roles that I'm I'm going to um, carry the pain. So this is a, the name for this is, is an exile role. And it's often exiled because uh, it's protecting the some other parts are protecting the human being from bearing that pain. So there's a part of the self that could be labeled the exile. There are actually several parts that could be in an exile role. A part that has a lot of sadness, a part that has a lot of anger, a part that has uh, an embarrassing secret. So are the other parts exiling that part or is the self exiling that part? That's, that's how the system works. It takes the voice away from this part that's carrying the pain. So if somebody had a lot of anger and for whatever reason 
that part of the self became exiled because they, as a group internally, felt that it wasn't going to be helpful to be angry. Maybe if they got angry, they were abused or they weren't listened to or something Mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. Then as an adult, they come in and they have a lot, they have a complex around anger or they don't express anger very often. Right. And as a result, they have a hard time asserting themselves or something. Then you might identify this part. So it sounds like the exile in you is the angry part of you, that the parts in you have exiled the angry part of you. Or I could simply say, how do other parts of you feel about this part that has the anger? I see. And they would say, I don't, I don't like it. We'd be better off without it. And I mean, you can, you can talk to somebody who grew up in a family where anger was not allowed. There's a lot of people who grew up in those families and they had to do something with their anger, but they, they weren't really invited to show it to their parents. So they, they were sort of secretly angry or they, they felt it like whenever you get angry, something bad happens, something hurtful, something destructive happens. That's kind of a, a learning about anger yeah. that, that is maybe not a true learning, but one that is, is shaped by the process in a lot of families. So what are the other common parts of self? You said exile. I think yeah, the parts man- in, the, in the manager role that, that typically are going to make your day go as, as you want it to. I mean, this is uh, close to the ego function. In, uh, in analytic thought or, or Jungian thought, it's, it's an interesting thing. A client will come to a counseling session and start to talk about something and kind of tear up. And they'll say, I promised myself I wasn't going to cry when I came today. And you think, well, well why? <laughs> this, this is kind of pretty standard for counseling sessions. People are very emotional. I, I didn't want that to happen. So that's the part in the manager role usually who's made that decision. And they think it's it's you're going to look weak, or you're going to look you know big boys don't cry. You're going to, you're going to look vulnerable. The manager is the person that tries to adhere to social standards, right? Tries to work at a job and look like a normal person or something, right? Whatever, whatever that definition is. Yeah, Jung's notion of the persona comes to mind is like put on a face that they want to see. Do other IFS internal family systems people? reference Jung as often as you do, or is that just you? It's probably just me. I studied Jung for six years before I studied IFS, so I see a lot of overlaps, and not everybody's had the chance to look at analytic psychology to that depth. Because in my, in my head, a lot of internal family systems people emerge from family therapy and from postmodern ideas. Mm-hmm. And those people don't typically have education in Jungian psychology. Right. So maybe that is a unique point of view that you have. But I like the connections you're making. It's, okay. a, it's interesting. It, you see some of the same dynamics of, of cutting off parts that are, are not appreciated by ego. And then they cause trouble. I mean, you, you get into, uh, you go ballistic at some point. And somebody says, gosh, I never saw that side of you. You know, darn right you never saw that side of me. I learned not to show that side of me. Or the manager learned not to show that side of me, right? Right. So the self with the capital S is somewhere in there that is not a part. It's the you. Yeah. Is that the idea? So the manager is a part of the self, but the capital S self is you. So they're sort of outside of the self, but a part of you, if that makes sense. So there's the manager, there's the exile, whatever that is. 
And what other roles are there? The third role is um, kind of a dramatic role. It's, um, uh, Dick used the name firefighter for it. So usually the ideas that the manager has are, are sufficient to contain the pain of, of parts that are exiled. Yeah. But sometimes it, this uh, feeling is building and it kind of breaks through. And, and then so the firefighter has pretty much the same concern. We shouldn't let that happen. But they do dramatic things like involved uh, in, in alcohol abuse or in, uh, in being highly sexualized or in uh, using drugs, anything to, to sort of keep that pain from taking over. I see. So a firefighter hears an alarm and comes running and does something dramatic yeah. and then goes back to the fire station. Yeah. So with sex addiction, I think, is that what you mentioned? Yeah. They're, they might have some trauma that emerges or triggered for them. And the firefighter gets alerted and says, got to act out. Better go out and have a bunch of chaotic, weird, distracting sex with a bunch of weird people for the next three days. And you'll forget all about that trauma that happened to you when you were a child. And then when that's over, job done, go back to the fire station. Is that what you're saying? That's the metaphor. Exactly. So again, it's trying to distance the self, capital S, from the part of the person who acts out. So trying to distance the person from the acting out behavior, because a lot of people feel a lot of shame about that behavior. Yeah. So the exile is identified to get them to let that person back in. Mm -hmm. The firefighter is identified to say that person has a role because there's an alarm, but it's not the you that did that. It's not the you that's an addict. It's not the you that acts out. It's not the mm-hmm. you that does those things that you regret, but it's it's a protective mechanism. So it's mainly a distractive role. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Or, or a, a um, substituting this for, for what's really going on. It might, might be uh, the way a teenager acts out in a family so that attention will be distracted from uh, pain between the, the parents. Right. So that's where the similarity or I could see how internal family systems emerged from that way of thinking. Because a very common example given in systems theory is you have a teenager that's not doing well in school, using drugs, defiant, staying out all night come into therapy and the family systems investigator figures out or makes the analysis, you know, determines that the problem of the acting out teenager is just a distraction from some other deeper family systems problem. Like the family went through a difficulty or a loss a long time ago and they haven't mourned it or there's significant parental conflict and the child is distracting from that because they've been elected by the system to do that for the betterment of the system. A lot of times the hypothesis would be they have a protective role. They're going to be the scapegoat and take all the attention so that something else doesn't come to light. Right, because the system worries that if there isn't a distraction, that the system will fall apart and then they'll be worse off as a result. It's not like people actually talk about this. They work it all out. Right. Sal Mnuchin used to tell about this uh, single mom with two teenage sons, and whenever she got depressed, they'd start fighting. And she'd come out of her depression to tell them not to fight, and then they'd be okay for a while. And then if they started getting depressed again, they, they knew how to act her. The way that I think about it and explain it to my students is that with an example like that, the kids actually have no conscious awareness of it at all, but that over time there's reward and, and habit and learning that occurs. So the example, using your example of, it's like 
the the kids will randomly fight sometimes and they'll randomly not fight sometimes. But for whatever reason, when they fight during particular environmental situations, they find that afterwards they actually feel overall better, even though they had a negative interaction with their sibling. And mm-hmm. they don't know why. They're just like, but it just gets ingrained into their neurons that when I fight with my sibling under a particular vibe that I'm getting... I actually, in the end, feel better than I did before the fight. And because you have a child that is like, oh, mom's depressed. I feel very neglected right now and I'm, I'm scared. And then after, you know, whatever they did, they actually, well, mom's around now. I don't feel as scared anymore. And so that behavior becomes locked into their behavior and in the family system as a behavioral learning uh, activity. And it becomes habit. And so they end up just yeah. whenever they get the cue of uh, mom depressed sleeping in a room, the, the impulse to fight just emerges naturally, even though they haven't actually connected all these things together. Yeah, there's um, the systems therapist is always looking for the pattern of interaction. Who does what to whom, when, and then what happens. Right. And so you start looking at the family in that way. So, gosh, these two are not fighting randomly. They're, they're, they're fighting at a point where the mother seems to be tuning out. And then what she does in response to them is to show up. Systems people are very interested in behavior, not about intention. And what it does. What does it do? Yeah. So this family comes into therapy and they say, my kids are, you know, the mother said, my kids are fighting too much. You got to, you got to stop, make them stop. There's something wrong with my kids. If you're not a systems thinker, then you sit there and cognitive behaviorally try to figure out a way to get these kids to stop. But the system thinker says, no, even if you did that, that doesn't solve the real problem because this fighting is actually a solution to a another problem of the mom's depressed or the mother is overworked and doesn't have any time for herself or something along those lines. And if you address that, then the kids won't have a reason to fight and then you've solved not only the initial problem, but the larger problem as well. So as we're talking about systems theory and we've talked about internal family systems, I am wondering if the internal family system ro- systems roles are thought to interact in the same systemic way. Do they interact in that systemic yeah, way? Yeah, that the systems are always being systems. But yeah. What's interesting, Kirk, is you might have a, a person whose life, you can identify managers, parts in the manager roles, parts in the firefighter roles, parts in the exit roles, without ever really getting a sense of self at all. Self, there's no leader to this process. It's just a pattern of interaction. And as you try to introduce self, self has a kind of capacity to care and to have empathy that parts typically don't have. It's almost like self is three-dimensional and parts are one-dimensional. Kind of a test question you say is, uh, um, somebody says, well, gosh, I've got this part that just is, uh, is kind of weak and doesn't want to go to, to face things. And uh, you say, well, well, how do you feel about that part? And usually when you say you, you're addressing self, mm. but sometimes parts are blended with self. So you don't hear the answer self would give you. Say, I, I hate that part. I'm doing everything I can to keep him from showing up. And say, gosh, I'm, I'm talking to a part. I'm not really talking to self yet. So I might say, would, would you ask the part that feels that way if you could just take a step back so we could get to know a little bit better the part that's feeling weak and, and scared with, with that. They could watch, and if we did anything that threatened them, they could intervene again. But if So I'm asking self to talk to the part in order to make a little bit of opening 
to get to know something better. And and what we would normally see, just like uh, in analytic thought, there's ego development. This is a differentiation picture of, of self is differentiating and becoming more and more being able to be in interaction with parts. And the parts will feel that. Um, they become aware of a resourceful self. And in, in the past, they, if, especially if they're very young, when these scary, terrible things happen to them, that they didn't have a sense that there was a resourceful self who could manage things. Uh, do you ever have skepticism from your clients where they don't appreciate the model in the way that you explain it? I think it's pretty common to have skepticism. One of the things about multiplicity, which is the idea that we have parts, is that people are just frightened of that. They've seen The Three Faces of Eve or uh, another movie that is about what we now call dissociative identity, and they don't understand how common dissociating is to protect yourself. I mean, if you look at a graduate student in class, they could be pretty well dissociated <laughs> uh, just because they have something more interesting to think about than class. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's saying, well, you're, you're not saying I'm crazy, are you? Mm-hmm. No, no. I, I think everybody has multiplicity. You know, it's a funny thing. You you hear somebody say, I, 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 I was... I was talking to myself on the way over here. Really, who, who was it that was talking? Oh, well, me. I, I, I was talking to myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think of the, the dead metaphor of the skyscraper. It's just a building. It's not a building so tall that it scrapes the sky, which is how they used to talk about it when Lewis Sullivan started making them. The metaphor part is gone, but I talk to myself could be describing a process where there's an interaction between a part and self. And so I, I'll usually say, well, what did self think of that when you told them that? Oh, well, they, they liked it. I mean, they, they're kind of like, this is a strange way to talk, which you get a lot. I mean, if you're doing narrative therapy, people said, you, you talk funny. Yeah, yeah. Right? They gradually become, if it is of help to them at all, first of all, it, it doesn't totalize them. There's, there's a lot of grace for someone who has an, a part that, that is uh, angry because anger is just a change emotion. So you say, well, is there a part of you that wants to change things, that things feel unjust and you feel unfair against by your your spouse? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sure do feel that. Okay, well, how do you you work with that? Well, I don't say anything. Why is that? Well, because I learned from my mother and father that anger is destructive. So is that part of internal family systems, what you're talking about right now, or is that your own personal style coming through or some other style coming I don't through. know if I can tell anymore <laughs> the difference between the way I do it and the way it is you know they used to tease up at Yale Town in the olden days about the narrative police coming to a session and determining whether or not you were doing it appropriately and they I guess arrest you if you were doing bad narrative work there's nobody there but you when you're using any model so you're always using it the way you use it I, I'm just thinking of these as as examples of what helps people to be aware of internal dialogue. We have a good friend who's a naturopath who always talks about the committee inside a person's head. When you talk about getting exercise, there's a committee that weighs in on that. Yeah, sure, that'd be good, but we'd have to get off the couch, wouldn't we? So just having this sense that there's a committee inside of all of us. Do you ever just scrap the model with a client and say, I don't think this is working? Um. I, I think it's always uh, helping me to think about what's happening with the client. In any theory, I'm not wanting to say, this is this is how you have to be because this is the kind of work that I do. But it, it helps me make sense 
uh, out of how people behave, which is what we really ask a theory to do. Right. I'm a psychodynamic thinker when it comes to personality and yeah. that sort of thing, and even incorporating it into my systems thinking. And if someone asked me what I'm asking you, I, I would say, no, that's just the model I apply to everybody, whether they <laughs> like it or not, it, it'll fit in there somewhere. Whether or not it's a major focus for the treatment is dependent on the problem that the client has. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it, it's, it's a theory is there to help me and I use what helps me. I, I've, I've taught a lot of theories in 30 years, so I have a lot of help from my friends. I was struck by a description Sal Manoush gave one time about having a little Carl Whitaker doll on his shoulder that talked to him during sessions because they had talked about therapy and what, what made it work well so much together that it was like he had a supervisor in session with him. So one of the things that therapists do is they have the same kind of inner dialogue going on. Uh, we haven't really talked too much about the interpersonal kinds of pairings, but there there could be a part of a of a therapist that's very critical of a client at any at a given moment. So you're saying that the therapist also has an internal family system. That's right. And that different parts in the client might evoke different parts in the therapist. Mm -hmm. The parts will interact with each other. Right. So a therapist might have a, a critical side of themselves or, or what sort of side of themselves that might criticize a client? Critical is, is one that gets a lot of attention. Is that like a manager or what is that? The part that's critical? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think a part could, could step into a manager role and this whole session would go better if you just listen to me. You know, you try that. You want to listen to me? I'm, I've stopped doing therapy at some point in that discourse and, and, and I'm just organizing the other people. It's also um, th this sort of thing that leads one to think about countertransference, that there are things in me that get evoked and, and elicited just by the stuff that my client is talking to me about. And I... In analytic work, I really have to be aware of those. I need mean, that's how I figure out uh, some of what's going on. Yeah, it seems like a, I don't want to say simple as in bad simple, but simple as in good simple way of thinking about Jungian theory and also psychodynamic development theory in terms of the personality and defenses and, and these kinds of things. Because I'm hearing a lot of common factors with, with the way I think about defenses and how they interact with other people and in systems. And it seems like it's easier to teach and to talk about in a graduate school <laughs> format when you only have so much time to teach models. Yeah. Because I find that with psychodynamic theory, when I'm teaching it, I find that I need these students for 10 times longer than I have with them. Whereas internal family systems, I, I'm just guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, that you could teach this fairly quickly and it could make a lot of sense to people and be useful very quickly and they would retain it better because there's limited things to remember. <laughs> Is that true? In a sense, the people that are attracted to it are people that have kind of had hunches like this for a long time, that they, they're aware that they, they have parts. I mean, maybe that's true about systems theory in general, that, that if, if you haven't had experiences of the whole being more than the sum of the parts, then, then it just doesn't make as much sense to you. So they will grasp it, um, but they have the same fight. That The simplest possible statement of the goal of internal family systems therapy is that both the person of the therapist and the person of the client or clients are in self-leadership. And it's the practice of maintaining leadership of the self, the, the part that can look at others with c 
curiosity and, and caring and compassion and clarity and not get sidelined by a defensive reaction. So the hope is that the therapist and the clients can enact their capital S self mm-hmm. and not let their managers and their exiles and their firemen mess things up for them. Right. And it's a question of, like in Bowen theory, more and more. It isn't a question of 100%. So as in Bowen theory, trying to be as differentiated as you possibly can by understanding the differences between your feelings and your rational thoughts. And that could be simply an awareness uh, I'm aware that a part of me just got really upset with you when you looked at your watch. In graduate's classes, when somebody picks out a phone and starts uh, texting, uh, most teachers, I think, have a part that gets kind of annoyed with that. This isn't our contract, is it, that you're going to be here texting your friends? Or So what part of the internal family system is that in me? Uh, the uh, anti-phone texting part of myself, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, what is it? What is what is the part of? I can cast it in a number of ways. It's part of me that that really likes to have your full attention. I mean, it's a practical part where it's just it's just that's right. But I can also be neurotic, right, about not having your full attention. So, what is that part of the self? What's what's that part? It could be that it's a um, it's a combination of two things. One is there's a part that feels pain when I'm not seen, when I'm I'm overlooked. And then there's another part that takes care of that part. So parents often will talk to their children about giving their full attention to the parent as if like they they could be expected to listen better when they're not listening. I mean, you can have stuff fall on your ears without listening. I had a, a daughter one time when I was raising my voice, she put her hands over her ears and I thought, that's frustrating because I want her to hear me more. That's why I raised my voice. This is a pattern between two human beings where there's a part that's demanding attention and there's a part that doesn't want to give attention or is taken back by the intensity of that moment. So these are our little dances that we can do, my part with your part. If you were to go to your therapist after that class and they were an internal family systems person, okay. and they said, okay, well, what, what part of you was hurt by that student uh, texting while you were teaching, you it's you wouldn't necessarily have one of the three main labels. You would just say, "Well, there's a part of me that feels hurt when I'm not listened to." Is that how you might phrase it? Yeah, yeah. That there's an awareness of parts before there's an awareness of their roles. And then another part of me, you know, swooped in to protect that that part of me that has been around forever yeah. in me and that part decided to give that student an F and kick him out of the class. Yeah. That's that's my manager part. I know him well. Oh, that's the manager part. Well, it's a part acting in in a role to, to make it better. And that you would determine as not the true self, the capital S self acting, that was the manager acting and now you're talking with the therapist about how to manage your manager. <laughs> right. So it would be curious if if um, I had a chance to talk with that student and say, yeah, I'm really curious about how it is for you when you're in class and, and you have a text to respond to it. What really gets your attention? But it'd be much easier to say, like, I'm annoyed that you did that. Yeah. I want to take the anger out of it before I have the conversation. Because if I'm in self-leadership, I- I'm going to feel curious about this student, not angry with this student. Right. A differentiated person. Hopefully. Comes at the student and says, I'm curious what's going on for you, instead of reacting emotionally by attacking the person. Right, right. And it isn't just the words. 
I'm, I'm actually living curiosity. Not living in anger. Right. I'm, I'm not gritting my teeth. I'm very curious. Yeah. It's actually actually being curious. In, in the way that I think about object relations and psychodynamic theory, I believe in the model of internalized experiences growing up. So there will be internalized dyads. So just as a snippet, you have a child that interacts with their mother and experience love. So the child is lonely and the mother comes over and loves the child, pays attention to the child. The child internalizes this as a dyad of someone in need, someone vulnerable, and another that is being caring. And the both become a part of the self. So mm-hmm. you have the, the vulnerable asking for love part and you have the caring, giving love part. And this gives that individual over time the ability to not only love the self when they feel lonely, but also be able to love others when they see loneliness. And this, of course, can be a negative experience as well, where, you know, they are abused and so they internalize the abuser and they internalize a a victim hurt self and they might act that out later in life by finding victims to abuse. So they've internalized the abuser. Are there parts of that theory in internal family systems? Are there common factors? Yeah, I think um, people who talk with me about a, a critical part, uh, they've, they've, they've done something, uh, I don't know, like they got their hair cut different and they're hearing this critical part say you don't look that good. A self-voice. Yeah, self-voice, self-talk. But for whatever reason, it sounds like my mother. <laughs> you know, that I've, I've, I've internalized that kind of interaction with others or uh, my, my, my sister or my brother. That criticized me so many years yes. ago for so often when I was a child. And now I have that voice inside of myself. So you would incorporate that into, or is that in the internal family systems model? Or Yeah. My goal is usually to, to be able to place where I, I can get to understand more a little bit more of the story of this part that's critical. Like uh, it might be, if, if we could get everyone else to step back a little bit so that we had permission to get to know this part, there might be questions like, well, what is it you want me most to know about you? Well, I I don't want people to laugh at him. It's so easy for others to be, you know, there were a lot of times in, in elementary school where this kind of stuff didn't go down well with the other kids. So mm-hmm. I keep a watch on his sort of uh, spontaneity yeah. so that he doesn't put his foot in his mouth. This is critical part has a reason for acting critically. So they could have been incorporated or you could have split those out into two different parts, the part that feels like a fool yeah. and then the manager that comes in and criticizes right, or right. something. Or you could have it in one part where the critical part is a scared part. Both models make sense to the client and are helpful. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I, I might ask a part, uh, how did you get this job? How old were, were you when, when you had to start doing this? What are you afraid would happen if you didn't do your job? You know, the, these are kind of the, the, the structures that give me a kind of way to understand a, a part that's acting in a way that I, I really don't understand at first, like um, a, a part that wants to deny food to this human being because they don't conform to some image of, of what a body should look like. You know, it's easy to get crossways with a part that, that uh, doesn't want someone to eat. 
So I have to challenge myself to try to understand what, what, are, what are you concerned about? What, yeah. what would be the terrible thing that would happen if, if they had 2,000 calories a day? And you would separate out that part of the self that is restricting. Yeah, to, to, to understand. That's not the true self. That's a part of the self. That's right. My first priority would be if, if the self of the person could have that conversation with, with the restricting part, but that's not always possible because there's not enough of the self present to do that. Or that other parts that are really critical of the restricting part kind of blend in and, and uh, sort of um, contaminate that conversation. I see. Then you referred to that earlier. So if you ask someone to have some self-leadership mm-hmm. and they are very critical of that restricting part and they say, I, I, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk with my true self at my restricting part. I hate you. You're a terrible, you're terrible. You've ruined my life. There's right. something wrong with you. You would think in your mind, I don't think that's their true self. They're not having self-leadership right now. They're that's the manager coming in yeah. and yelling at the... Sometimes it's uh, dictionary says it's useful to have a parts detector yeah. of your own. It says, oh, that, that's the way a part talks. That's not the way self talks. So he would test that by saying, well, uh, would you ask that, that part that feels so, so angry about this part to step back a little bit? Now, how do you feel about that part? And it, at the point where they would say that they're beginning to be a little curious and, and they're wanting to know more about this person, then it's safe to have that conversation. At, at first, um, it, it's, it's simply to understand the, the territory, to, to get an acknowledgement of the parts that are there. Insight. Yeah. And, and therefore control. Well, relationship more than control. Okay. Maybe a goal would be for the parts to, to step away from the role and, and trust the leadership of this whole enterprise to self. Right. They have to have experience of the self-leading. That's what I mean by control. It's like okay. if you have insight that when I'm angry, that's this part of myself, and it has a role sometimes, but do I want that part of me to be engaged right now? Maybe, and maybe not. And so by insight, because what people will do is they'll be angry, and they'll be like, well, that's how I feel. That's me. And this model right. is trying to say it's a part of you, and you have a choice as to whether or not you want to engage it. And so insight leading to control in that way, I guess that's what I'm saying. And, and, and self at that point could be thinking the thoughts of the part when they say that's me, that, that they're so fused or right. blended right. That, that they haven't made any distinctions. Do they talk about not having enmeshment of parts? Is that, is that language that they might use? This uh, sorting out of self uh, as, uh, in, in vis-a-vis parts is pretty critical because you, you understand the, the implications of the affect. I, I want to get to know you better so I can eliminate you. Uh, it is not a, a trust uh, a program. So w- what facilitates is, is this kind of things Virginia Sheer talked about, authenticity and, and actual interest and, and really following and, and trying to, to say, now I, I know you better because you've told me about yourself. You're talking about discussions between the parts now? Between self and parts. So the self is curious about the parts and really listens to the parts. Absolutely. That really listening is... is um, I know maybe you may have had students that talked about their work and said, well, I was just listening as, as if that was not an intervention. That's a very, very powerful thing because yeah. these are parts that don't get listened to. Uh, they're, if they're valued, they're valued for their productivity, not, not for themselves. Yeah. So you're, you're trying to get to know them the, the way they are. 
and and you would say, asking, well, what would you like to do if you didn't have this job? I don't know. I've, I've never thought of anything else because I've always had this job. Okay, well, just think about like what are some other possibilities that would be more fun than t- taking on this role if, if it wasn't necessary. Again, if if you're thinking in analytic thought, you're not taking apart somebody's defense mechanism until there's something to take its place. But if it isn't necessary, w- would you want to keep doing this? Well, not really. <laughs> so it's it's a lot about those dynamics and uh, finding the self is is looking for the one who can listen because in, in the interactions between other parts, you you don't really see any acknowledgement and 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 appreciation or even empathy for for other parts. As we talk about it, it's becoming a little bit more systems or family systems oriented in my mind, but. But looked at in another way, it seems like a very individual type of model, you know, like you're saying with Jung and, and yeah. with other thinking. It on its own, if I didn't know Schwartz came from family systems, I would have thought that the person who came up with it was not from family systems necessarily. I see. Yeah. And because it doesn't talk about I mean, you talked about how parts of the therapist and I'm guessing parts of like your spouse will get engaged with different parts of the other person. That makes sense in a systemic way, but it still seems very contained in the individual, if that makes any sense. Am I making any sense here? It doesn't seem like a systems theory in the, in now, the, in the strictest sense. I think where you start to try to understand is with the, the, the internal family system of an individual. Right. And and as you get grounded in those those kinds of of understandings, then you can begin to apply it. Well, here's a mother who's yelling at a child. And it's not that the mother doesn't love the child, although the child may say she can't love me if she's yelling at me like that. But there's a part of the mom that that is embarrassed. Uh this typically happens at the grocery store where the t- two-year-old is pulling things off the shelves and into the basket. And that, that's a pretty robust conversation the mother has. And um, th- there's a needy part of the child and, and a, a kind of uh, ordering part uh, that, get, that have it, their own stable dance. That, that, that's that's a, a pursuer-distancer kind of relationship. And so it gets really interesting in couples and in families when you start to look at the part-part interactions, the part of A and the part of B that have an interaction that they hardly even know that they're doing. So might one say, boy, in this family, this person is frequently exhibiting the manager part. This person is managing a lot of people's feelings or behavior. This person is exhibiting their exile part often. Mm-hmm. They, their exile part is, is being manifested a lot. Is, is that the way some people will think? It's, or is it more it, specific of like the system changes over time and different parts emerge in response to situations and different people's parts, that kind of stuff? Well, just like any systems work, I'm trying to get a sense of, of how the system operates. What is the pattern of interaction, um, whether it's between two people or, or many people? And this gives me a degree of freedom, if you will, that, that there's um, this, this is a mother I'm willing to stipulate really loves her child, even though it's really hard to see much evidence of that in the behavior she's showing me right now. So it's like uh, easy for me to think, well, there's this part of her that has a vested interest in, in the behavior 
of the child and that she is um, having some feelings about how the child is behaving and there's a part of her that rushes in to set it right. So are you saying that a part of her has a vested interest in another person acting in a particular way? Yeah. But not the true self doesn't have a vested interest. It's a No, part. The, the, the true self, if she had access to it, would find a different way to to deal with that two-year-old who's grabbing things and putting them in the cart. The true self would never have a vested interest in a child misbehaving. Right. They, they would want to, to maybe address uh, the, the need of the child. Anything else you'd like to talk about internal family systems before we wrap it up? Gosh, it's, um, it, it's, it's so hard to contain it to a few uh, ideas, but, but the, these ideas are at the heart of it. The reason that... Um, the therapist it gets to work with the self of people. It's it's kind of less exhausting. It's a tenet of a number of theories, solution focused theory, narrative theory, that the resources that are needed are already there. You don't have to teach people this stuff. You just have to be creative about finding those resources and and uh, given an understanding of uh, how it is that somebody is is critical or is distrusting or is uh, withholding themselves, you know, then that part of us that can empathize can say, I understand how it got to be that you don't want to have relationships, but aren't you lonely? What is the lonely part if you think about this? I wonder if, if there could be some conversation between the part of you that's dead set against relationship and the part of you that's suffering so much because they're so lonely that, that would lead to a different possible outcome. Would you have them have that conversation between those two parts? Ideally, self would, would be in the middle of that. Yeah. That self would be trying to understand the, the part that's lonely. Because uh-huh. they would be able to be curious as opposed to attacking the lonely part. Yeah. Do you do empty chair ever with that? Uh, yeah. Or, or actually have people move from one chair to the other chair. Right. Active imagination, a, a Jungian idea, is really helpful uh, in journaling to have the part of you that thinks you should never stand out, uh, you should never excel. Uh, uh, explain, you know, why that is. And then who who talks back and says, but, 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 but. And then out of that dialogue, there'd be a wealth of information about a danger that maybe is not perceived on the, on the, on the front of it. It's sort of like that thing about, gosh, I'm starting to make more money than my dad did. And I, I'm finding it hard to keep working because it's part of me that doesn't want to make more money than my dad. It feels sort of disloyal somehow. I, I never really thought about that. But at an unconscious level, it was unconscious until I started talking about it. <laughs> I, I think I, I, that's a loyalty thing. right? So, so a lot of things like that c- come up in those kinds of conversations. Right. Drawing can be a real big help. People who have an artistic bent actually can draw images of, of different parts of them. And um, there's just been articles published that really, really powerful things when you, when, when you describe what has not been described, when you see what hasn't been seen. Yeah. It, it just makes a huge difference within the energy of the system. Right. So you might have a client draw their exile or their manager. Right. And they are free to draw whatever they want to. Yeah. And through this intervention, the client has a visual of what they have. Because, of course, that visual wasn't exactly in their mind because they've never had to draw it. But, right. But a visual representation of how 
they would like to put it onto paper in that moment. Right. And that helps them understand that part of themselves and understand why that self, that part exists and, and yeah, yeah. their particular reactions. That makes sense. One of the more famous, I guess, depictions of a, of a of the multiplicity is the character of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it isn't just that he talked with a different voice when he was good or bad. He, he looked different. And, and somebody in the artist world had to figure out how to make that happen, how it would change. Uh, some, but you, you actually hear that when you talk with people, uh, that, that they, are, they don't look like the person they were just a moment ago. Right. A friend of mine wants to do a study on this, mm-hmm. trying to detect multiplicity changes in people as they're talking. He's running into some methodological problems because it's hard to do this, but yeah. he wants to audio and videotape people and prompt them to talk from different parts of the self. He's not an internal family systems thinker. He's, I, I don't know exactly where he, what theory uh-huh. comes from, but multiplicity of cells. And then try to measure different pitch variations or mm-hmm. speed of speaking or, or amplitude mathematically to, quote unquote, prove that different selves will speak with different in different ways. Yeah. Just what you're talking about. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Bill. I, I feel like I understand the theory much, much better, and I hope my listeners do too. That's great. There's a lot of good questions. What would you like to plug? Anything? You have a practice you want to plug or uh, anything? I, I have a diminishing practice uh, as, as I'm getting on toward retiring. Um there are a number of people in Seattle who have, have trained with IFS, and anybody who wanted to look for them could go to the website, which is uh, selfleadership.org, and there's a therapist finder function there where they could look up. Uh, if they were interested in this training, there's there's some really competent therapists who try to help people this way. It's not the only thing they know how to do, but they're persuaded that it is helpful. So selfleadership.org, right. you can find therapists to help you from the internal family system. As well as model. more books uh, or uh, readings ab- about the whole theory. As well as if you're a therapist, yeah. you can learn about internal family systems and, and maybe they have trainings on that website. They do. Uh, around the country, we, we hosted a number of trainings between 1998 and 2007. But there's also a, a book that Dick wrote just for the client, and which has been real helpful. It's a book I use as a textbook when I teach a class in IFS. It's uh, It gets away from the kind of jargon that therapists love so much and, and deals with the experience. Um, so a lot of people have found that, say, gee, I, I really saw myself when I read this in the book. I, I have a better understanding of, of how I function. What's that book called? I think it's Introduction to Internal Family Systems, but it's it's available on that same website. And where do you teach again, Bill? Uh, mostly in the Seattle Pacific University's Master's in Marriage and Family Therapy. Uh-huh. And I also teach a course at Seattle U. Does SBU have an ongoing IFS class? Yes. That's a requirement or a elective? It's an elective. Oh, okay. It's taught in the summer, and if enough people are interested in the theory, uh, then it, it gets taught. Huh. You should teach at Antioch, too. I know that there are a lot of people interested in it. Okay, so you don't want to plug your practice because you're trying to retire, so you're trying to shoo people away. Well, I'm trying to help some people, but not a lot of people. Do you provide supervision with IFS? Yes. Okay. So if someone in the area wants to hire you as a supervisor to, to learn how to work with clients through an IFS? I'd be glad to do that, yeah. Okay. And they could find you at? At, at Samaritan Center, 
uh, we have our own website, which is SamaritanPS.org. Okay. Samaritan Center of Puget Sound. So SamaritanPS.org. And okay. there's a trunk phone number that they could easily get us. And where is that located? And near Green Lake at 65th and Ravenna Boulevard. Do the sword guys still practice by there? Under the under the I-5 um, bridges, usually on Wednesday nights. Yeah. It's quite a group. Yeah. They've been there forever. I mean, I remember yeah. them being there like 20 years ago. You'd, you'd just be driving by on a random rush hour, like 5 o'clock, and underneath I-5, this, you know, it's this huge, there's these huge columns of concrete, probably, I don't know, like 40 feet high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The overpass of I-5 is above, and below where there's just concrete and grass, and, and it's not a park. It's just kind of like abandoned area. Yeah. You'll see these guys in full medieval armor, like full-on armor, just beating each other with swords hard. Yeah. With no one watching. It's like I think a, they're wooden. I don't think they're sharp. Oh, really? But that it is physical. Oh. They, they also do it down in Ravenna Park. Well, down there, they also have the, the live role-playing guys. Like, I was walking through there one time, and there were guys dressed up in wizard outfits, and they were casting oh. spells at each other. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's Seattle. There are a lot of nerds yeah. like, like myself. And, and so I've always actually envied the guys in the sword thing, because I think that looks like a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. You know, in the East, they have Civil War reconstructors. Exactly. They they love to dress up and play. So anyway. Well, thanks, Bill, for coming on the podcast. It's been illuminating. Great. Glad to be here. Thanks, Kirk. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there, and please take care of yourself. 